taken from the 32nd number of Psalms. I have read it in its entirety, but our focus is going to be on verses 8 and 9. So I'll read verses 8 and 9. Psalms 32, verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. As I indicated, I've read the entire psalm, and it does frame the backdrop of even the text that we've chosen, but since we have read the entire psalm before we zero in on verses 8 and 9, which is my focus, my focus point, let me just give a brief overview of the whole psalm. And the psalm itself can be divided along five lines, so let me give you the five sections of this particular psalm. The first section is verses 1 and 2. And in verses 1 and 2, uh, David sets forth what is described or what could be described as the legal status that is granted by the gospel. He says, uh, blessed is the man whose transgression uh, is forgiven, uh, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The legal status, this is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 4, this, these two verses to establish what is called the forensic nature of justification. That is our legal status. It is a legal status because in the gospel, the Lord counts no iniquity to us because he has forgiven our trespasses, and he has covered our sins. That is not something that we have earned. It is what God has done. In verses 3 through 5, which is the second section, David sets forth not just the legal uh, claims of the gospel or what we have gained from the gospel in terms of our legal status, but David in verses 3 and 5, or 3 through 5, sets forth the parental manter, manner in which God deals with our continuing sin. He deals with the parental manner in which God deals with our continuing sin. Three things in particular that he focuses on. Now, by the way, it is critical that we see our legal status before we can understand God's parental dealing. Because the judge has rendered our not being guilty, he now can deal with the reality of our sins, our continuing sin. In verses 3 through 5, 1, David says that he laid his hand heavy upon me. That's how God deals with the continuing sins of those that he has declared to be righteous. He will lay his hand upon us. He lays his hand upon us when he sends brothers and sisters our way to confront us in our sins. He, he circumvents our circumstances to make us conscious of it, but it is the hand of the Lord. And that's what David is describing in verses 3 through 5, the hand of the Lord being heavy upon him. And then he says that he sapped all of my energy. He drains me of my energy and he brings a sense of discomfort. 
What he describes in verse 3 is the hand of the Lord heavy upon him. And then he says that, he says, uh, for day and night your hand was heavy on me and my strength was dried up by the weight or by the heat of, of, uh, as of by the heat of summer. So God brings discomfort. This is what Paul is admonishing the Corinthians to deal with when they had a brother who was overtaken in sin. Everyone knew it, but they didn't confront the sin. And then Paul goes on to say, no, make him remove from him the right hand of fellowship. Make him uncomfortable. This is what David says. This is, this is what is intended in the book of Hebrews where he says that, that God chastens those that belong to him. He doesn't discipline everyone else's children. He raises his own children. And in his disciplining of his children, he makes us uncomfortable. God wants us to miss what he takes from us when he disciplines us. He wants us to understand the, the, the privilege of being surrounded by his grace and his love. But then David says, ultimately, the end of all of this is that he brings us to confession. He says, I confess my sin before you. I confess my iniquity, and that's what God wants. That's why we have built into our, our, our ordinary pastoral prayer a room for confession. Jesus taught his disciples when he taught them to pray. He taught them the petition, forgive us our sins. Even as we forgive our, our debtors or those who have sinned against us. That's God's parental dealings. This is God dealing, having dealt with us in the courtroom and has announced us not guilty. He deals with us in the family room as a father who disciplines his children. That's what David addresses in verses 3 through 5. In verses 6 and 7, David expresses the confidence of those who trust in the gospel. He acknowledges again the difficulties that are part of life. In verse 6 he says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. In other words, because we are your children, because we have this legal standing before you, the waters will not overwhelm us. We will experience them, but that's why we can call upon God. And then in verse 7, he puts it very succinctly, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. Again, none of this is based on human merit. All of this is the result of being forgiven by God and having a right legal standing with him, whereby he receives us as children. We are therefore to be able, or, or we should be able to have confidence that when we pray, we will be heard, and when we hurt, we will be healed. And then the fourth section from which our text is taken, we'll return to that in a moment. But the fifth section is verses 10 and 11. And in verses 10 and 11, it makes up really what is, uh, I would call, an overarching summary of the entire psalm. In other words, it's the rationale that flows from the content of the balance of the psalm. There is a summary statement that opens it. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's the whole point that's being made. By steadfast love, as we've indicated through other expositions from the Psalms, by steadfast love, what we mean is God's covenant love and faithfulness to those that he saves. And the point that's being made 
is that even though sorrow surrounds the wicked, here's what is true, and it is true for everyone whom God has declared uh, that, that, that their sins are, are not charged against them, and to everyone that the Lord receives as a child of his own, they are surrounded. I love that idea of being surrounded. Surrounded by the, the, the God or God's steadfast love. And, and then out of that overarching summary of God's steadfast love for his people, then the writer or David gives a, an exhortation. And the exhortation, which is found in verse 11 primarily, the exhortation in light of the summary is because you are surrounded by God's steadfast love, be glad. Be glad in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout, shout for joy. And all of this is because you are surrounded by God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love has given you a legal declaration, a legal standing before him that he will not impute your sins to you because he has legally transferred your guilt to another. Therefore, you have no iniquity. Go in peace. And because you are now declared innocent, you are his child. Because you're his child, he will deal with you as such. And even the heavy hand of the Lord is only because you are his. That means that when the time of troubles come, you can still have the confidence because you're a child and because you, you've been exonerated in court, you, have, you can go before him. When the storm comes, you don't have to start disengaging stuff and getting rid of stuff. What is it that I've done? You're, you're a child. He's yours. He hears you because you belong to him. His steadfast love surrounds you, and therefore, Paul, uh, David says, we should rejoice in him. Now, this brings us to the verses that I want to focus on, which is verses 8 and 9. And as you look at these verses, you'll notice that in the, the first thing that kind of stands out is there is a shift, a shift in the language, a shift in the writing. You notice that David speaks for the most part throughout the psalm. He speaks in the first person and he refers to God as an other. He speaks as if he's speaking about God. But here in verses 8 and 9, what stands out is God sort of intercedes. And no longer is David speaking to God and no longer is David speaking about God. But all of a sudden in verses 8 and 9, God shows up as the speaker. Notice that shift in verse 7. Even if you go back to, 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 verse, uh, yeah, to, to verse 7, it says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You command or you surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then in verse 8, I will instruct you. Now in all of the other me and uh, thou and, 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 and me references throughout the psalm, it's clearly that um, a matter of David speaking to God or David speaking about God. But since the, the, the subject here in verses 8 and 9 says, I will instruct you, we know that David is no longer talking to God because God can be instructed needs to be instructed by no man. Therefore, God is the speaker. 
And in these verses, God speaks. He says in verse 8, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the ways that you should go. Again, he speaks, he's speaking. God intervenes in the psalm and speaks in the first person. And what you'll notice in particular as he speaks, he makes three pledges, three things that he pledges to do for those whose sins that he has covered, whose transgressions have been forgiven, in other words, this isn't something that is earned, that God says he will do for those who are good. This is what God pledges to do for those that he has saved. I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will guide you. Now, I want to kind of unfold, unpack this. this is three, these are three pledges that are built into the faith of all of those who trust in the Lord for their salvation. Everyone whose sin is forgiven, everyone who is, is deemed, un, uh, or, or deemed righteous before God legally, this is what God pledges to do. I will instruct you, I will teach you, and I will guide you. First thing that we want to consider, therefore, as it relates to this threefold pledge, is that this pledge is framed in the reality of remaining sin. And in that remaining sin, what this means is that in this state of, re of remaining sin, we are prone to resist and we are prone to rebel against what we know ought to be the case. So what God pledges here is not, he's not just saying this is what I'm going to do for those who I have saved. He's saying this is what I am giving and this is what I am pledging to those that I have saved by my grace. Knowing that we are prone to resist and rebel against his word and his will. How do we see this? Well look in verse 9. In verse 9, David's, uh, God again speaking through David in the first person, God speaking. And he says, don't be like a horse or a mule. Why does he say that? Why does he say that? Who is he referring to? He's not talking to the unbeliever. He's not talking to the person who is still under condemnation. He is speaking to the person whose sins he has covered, in whom he has seen no iniquity. He is speaking to the one that he owns as a child. And he's saying to you that who have been set free, now don't act like a horse or a donkey that has no understanding. Let's see the context of this. Look in Ephesians chapter 4, and we often refer to this passage as it relates to our sanctification, but in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, the Apostle Paul, the writer here, is writing to those who he describes in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as having been previously dead in trespasses and sins, 
walking according to the influence of the spirit of the power of the air. And then he goes on in verses 11 through 17 of chapter 2 to describe them as being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. But he says, now you in that time, you were without hope and you were without God in the world, but now you have been brought near by Christ. And to these people, he writes in chapter 4, Beginning in verse 17, he speaks to these people. He says, and I test, now this I say, and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Notice this, what he's saying. You, you are renewed in Christ. You are sealed by his spirit. You are equal members of the household of God. And his exhortation is walk like it. And the implication is very clear that in, even in our regenerate state, we still have the remnant of sin in which we walk like we've never seen a savior. And so his exhortation is don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and that is due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of iniquity. But he urges, this is not so of you because you have learned Christ. And so here's what Paul or what, what the Lord is saying to David in the middle of this psalm. Yes, I have forgiven you. And, and part of God's forgiving of his saints is he's given us a new understanding. Now I mentioned this, I think, Wednesday night. There's a statement from Jonathan Edwards that bears repeating as it relates to Psalms or to, to Rev, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul says that the Spirit has, that God has poured His Spirit abroad in, or, or poured His love abroad in our hearts by His Spirit. And Jonathan Edwards says that God has poured His, His, His love in, in our hearts by the Spirit, but it's up to us to do the loving. Here's what God is saying to David. Yes, yes, I, I've forgiven you. And part of my forgiving you is that I have given you new life. This is what he promises in Ezekiel 36. I'll take the heart of stone out of you and give you a heart of flesh. I'll make you to understand. But notice how God is speaking though now to those that he's regenerated. He's saying consciously, don't make me have to treat you like a mule. My son is a grown man now, and my, my wife learned as a mother. She learned, she must have gone to the same school of mothering that my mother went to because my mother could control three kids from a choir stand. And all she had to do was make eye contact. And if she made eye contact, so my, 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 my wife was big on this with, with, with our son when he was coming up as a, as a toddler and as a little boy that, that when she wanted to get his attention, she'd look him in the eye. And that eye is saying, don't make me have to, you know, don't, don't, don't get other body parts involved in this. Let me look you in the eye. What the Lord is saying 
But he's saying, yes, I've forgiven you. Yes, I love you as a father. Yes, I, 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 my hand was heavy upon you, but the reason my hand was heavy upon you is because you didn't act like a child. You had that mulishness in you. But I would argue, because one of the reasons this is important, I was listening to the song this morning, old song, we are all familiar with it, Order My Steps in, or order my, 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 my steps in Your Word, O Lord. It has a statement in there, make me to understand. And God doesn't make us understand. No, we're asking for something that he's not going to do. What he will do is give you a new understanding. And it's your responsibility to understand with the understanding that he's given you in the gospel. Tonight I'm going to be talking about our identity issues. But here what the Lord is saying is, is, is don't let me have to treat you like a mule. Now you know what, what you have to do with mules sometimes. You know, the, the old saying goes that the guy was, was he had a, a mule that was doing all kinds of, of tricks and exercises. And, and every time he'd make a finger move, the, 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 the mule would, would bow down and so forth. And they noticed that he had this two by four in his hand. And they said, well, what's the two by four? If you're doing all this with your fingers, what's the two by four for? Sometimes you need to get his attention. This, this promise, this pledge of God instructing his people, of God teaching his people, of God guiding his people is given in a framework of understanding that I'm dealing as he tells, as he tells Ezekiel when he sends him down to, to minister. Ezekiel, Ezekiel, listen, I'm, I'm sending you to a hard-headed, hard, stiff-necked folk. You, you think unbelievers are something. Wait till you see my people. And so the Lord gives this pledge in the context of understanding the residue of remaining sin that makes us resistant, that makes us rebellious against what he clearly reveals. Because even though he gives us an ability to understand, he doesn't do the understanding for us. It is up to us to see sin as sin. He's already judged it. Then he says, I will make you, therefore, I will instruct you in the way. But now don't let me, that's the whole point of verse 9, don't let me have to treat you like a donkey. Don't let me have to treat you as a horse that the only way you can guide him is with a bridle in the mouth. Don't let, I ought to be able to lead you with my eye. That's what he's saying. Here's the second thing, the context in which God fulfills what he pledges here is really through our journey of difficulty. It's through our journey of circumstances that are alluded to in verses 6 and 7. In other words, if, he has, if he's given us a legal standing before him where we're not guilty, if he treats us as our children, then where and how does he need to lead and guide us? The context in which he leads us the context in which he guides and instructs us 
It's through those things that he describes again in verses 6 and 7. And notice again where he talks about in, in verse 6. In, in, in verse, yeah, in verse 6 he says, um, Surely in the rush of great waters. And here's what I would argue, brothers and sisters. The leading or the, the instruction of the Lord. The, 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 the teaching of the Lord. And the guiding of the Lord is in the context of those waters that we encounter. In other words, that it's not, it's, it's, what, what God gives us is not just for when we are in the pews. God's instructions for us is so that when we are in stormy weather, that we'll have an understanding of what's going on and, and we'll have an understanding of, of that he is with us as he says in Isaiah 43 that when you go through the storm, I am with you. When you go through the flame, I am with you. What God promises here, the context for it is as we see also in verse 7, it says that you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, we need to be instructed of how God is leading. It's hard. It's hard sometimes, even when we deal with sickness. There's times when we deal with sickness that, that we do pray for the, the healing of all of those who are in the Lord to be healed of their sicknesses. The reality, and this is where good instruction is helpful, is that he doesn't have to heal us from that sickness in order for us to be healed. I've, I've, I've had to deal with that. I've had to deal with people that, that he's going to deliver me from this. And, and we have to show them, here's God instructing. No, maybe not. My mother was diagnosed with, with, with cancer and, and she was only given X amount of months to live. I, I had to, to, to clean house with all of the do-gooders that were saying, oh, I'm just going to pray. No, we've had enough of that. Keep praying, but don't tell her that she's going to be delivered from this sickness. She may not. When I preached her funeral, I said, by his stripes, she's healed. And the Lord used cancer to take her to her healing. Brothers and sisters, God instructs us. God, God, God teaches us. God guides us through the difficult places, through the valley of the shadow of death to teach us that he'll never leave us and nor forsake us. I know your sins are forgiven and some people think that my sins are forgiven so all of my troubles will fly away. They may not. So when the Lord says that I will instruct you, I will teach you, I will guide you. Yes, he will teach us what it means to be saved. He will teach us what it means to be sinners. He will teach us what it means to be saved sinners. But he will also teach us in the way where we would discover that when it looks like we've lost, 
We haven't. Remember Elisha? When he was surrounded by all of the foreign soldiers. And he had a young man with him. And the young man looked out and Elisha was praying that he was just, just content. And the young man came to Elisha and he says, Master, we need to get going because we're surrounded. And Elisha never stopped drinking his coffee, I'm sure. And said, that's okay. There's more of us than it is of them. Young man, one, two. And then he looked out the window, no, no, master, we are surrounded. And, he, and Elisha never looked up. He just turned to the Lord and said, Lord, open his eyes. Open his eyes that he'll see that there are more of us than there are of him. The young man went back and he looked again and this time he saw the enemy and around the enemy he saw horses and chariots of fire. Brothers and sisters, God instructs us in the way that he leads us so that we would see that sometimes behind the visible is an invisible hand of providence that holds it all together. Yeah, this, this passage has, it's grounded in the reality of remaining sin. That's why God says, don't let me have to treat you like a horse or a stubborn mule. But the context in which God instructs his people, and the context in which he teaches us and guides us is in the mundane. It's in the grit, it's in the difficult hours, it's in those places that we don't always see a resolution. Yes, the young man did see chariots of fire, but there are other circumstances when even as the Hebrew boy says, listen, we are not going to bow down one way or the other. Because if we burn, we don't have to bow. And if we survive this fire, you're not going to want us to. See, brothers and sisters, we understand that God is with us when it feels like it and when it doesn't. And that's what he teaches us. Well, that brings me to the third and final consideration, and that is what God actually pledges. You see, the, the, the backdrop for his pledge is the, the residue of remaining sin that makes us resistant and rebellious to his word and to his will. The context of the pledge is that we need instructions from the Lord as we deal with waters that overcome us and circumstances that we can't figure out. But what is it that he pledges? Three things. One, he says, I will instruct. Now, the interesting thing here is that in the Hebrew, Hebrew almost literal translation of this phrase, instead of I will instruct, here's what he says, I will make you understand. That's what God is promising. I will make you understand. We see this in, in Luke 24 when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, encounters the disciples who are gathered in the upper room. He had already met with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they didn't understand and he opened up the scriptures and their minds were open. But then in Luke, 40, or Luke 24 beginning in verse 45, we get sort of a different explanation of the same dynamic as the Lord speaks to these disciples and he opens up the scriptures. But notice the way 
way uh, Luke records this, he not only says that he opens up the scriptures, but he opens up their minds. Beginning in verse 40, 44, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you, that I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The scriptures are written. And if you can read, in their case, if you could read Hebrew, you could understand, you can, you can comprehend the words. But what he's promising is that he will give you the ability to understand what the words are conveying. And so what Jesus does is he opens their minds so that they would understand Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures, what God is pledging and promising to those who belong to him is that he will give us the ability to understand him and his provisions for us and the sufficiency of what he's given us. He will make us understand it. He won't understand for us, but he will give us the capacity to understand. Secondly, he says, I will teach you. I will teach you. I will make you understand, and I will teach you. The aim, of course, of this divine instruction is that he will teach us to know the will of God. That's why Paul, in Ephesians 4, when he says, don't be like the rest of the Gentiles who walk according to the darkness of their understanding, but then he says, but you have not so learned Christ if you have been taught by him. Being instructed by the Lord gives us a better understanding of what God's way is and what's God's, what God's will is. There are some things that look right to us and seem right to our understanding, but as we are positioned in Christ, what seems right to us, what made sense to us, doesn't make sense. We read in our responsive reading, consider others as being better than yourself. There is nothing American about that. And there's nothing natural to that. But from our vantage point in Christ, that's how he teaches us. So that we would see our place and our purpose in this world, not through the lens of our fallen condition, not through the lens of the culture, but through the lens of our exalted position in Christ. It's for this reason that again in Ephesians 4 verse 11, Paul says that he's given to the church, the gift of first apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers for this reason, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry so that we are brought to maturity and stability in Christ. He teaches us. And again, the words of verse 9 come to bear. Don't let him have to teach us with a two by four. But he does teach us. He teaches us what is right, even when we don't like it. But third and finally, not only does he say he will teach us, but here's what he pledges to do. He says, I will guide you. And notice before he gives the warning, don't let me have to do it with a two by four. Don't let me have to do it with, with bridle. 
Here's what he promises. I will guide you with my eye. And basically what he's saying is, I, if you make eye contact with me, I will teach you in the way you ought to go. And brothers and sisters, the world in which we live is full of shiny objects that make us break eye contact with God. Sometimes our own, our own sinful inclinations, our own way of seeing things and doing things become shiny objects that, that break. How does God instruct us with his eye? By what he shows us in his word and what he has fulfilled in his son. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says, listen, lay aside every sin and weight that does easily beset you and look unto Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. And brothers and sisters, every time the Lord feeds us from the table, he's guiding us with his eye. Every time he instructs us from his word and feeds us from his gospel, he's guiding us with his eye. Every time we take heed to warnings and exhortations and admonishments that come from those who are connected to the body because Paul also says in Ephesians 4 that we are knitly joined together with each joint supplying strength to the other as each one does its part. Every time we take heed to the words of brothers and sisters, words of warning, words of encouragement, words of admonition, he is leading us with his eye. Every time we sing Zion songs, he's leading us with his eye. Because with his eye, he's not, he's not pulling out the two by four. He's not, diff he's not making, he's not muddying the waters for us. He's leading us with his eye to remind us that everything that he has given us in his son is sufficient for life and for death. Brothers and sisters, we are complete in him and God is teaching us that. And so here's what he promises. I'll make you understand because I've given you a new understanding I'll teach you because I've made you teachable. And I'll guide you if you understand what you've been taught. Not with the storms of life. I'll guide you with my eye. And that's what God pledges for everyone whose transgressions he does not count against them. And for everyone whose sins that he has covered. Amen.